Welcome to the CyberLife Podcast, where we help you learn cybersecurity best practices, give you a weekly update on the latest cybersecurity news, and share valuable career advice. Hey everyone, it's Ken. In today's episode, you'll hear from Jeff Rich, and he'll be sharing his wisdom around identity and identity security. Jeff has over 50 years of experience with computers and over 40 years in what we now call cybersecurity. He started back way before the term cybersecurity ever was invented. Jeff is very well known and he's a beloved conference speaker, security researcher, educator, and if you meet him in person, you can, you can instantly tell he's an all-around good guy. Jeff currently serves as the Executive Director for the Identity Defined Security Alliance, and you're going to find the links for that organization as well as the conferences that Jeff is planning to speak at while we're filming this here in 2023 uh, through the end of the year. So you'll find the links to all that stuff so you can track Jeff down if you're going to those conferences and actually meet him in person. So without further ado, let's jump in and learn from Jeff. So thanks again for coming on the show today, Jeff. Appreciate it. And you've got a lot of experience and we're going to dig into some of that wisdom in your brain and uh, talk a little bit about identity and identity security. So for the audience members out there, Jeff, that are like, you know, they maybe have an idea of what identity is, but they maybe don't understand in the context of cybersecurity. So can you just kind of briefly talk about like, what is identity in the context of cybersecurity and why is it so important? Sure. So let's start with uh, what is identity. And I, I'm going to go with the basics. It starts with the mirror. Take a look in the mirror, and that's identity. That's where you start. That's your carbon-based identity that you're looking at, or at least an image of it. And translating that to cyber, it means a whole bunch of different things. But I, I always use analogies and go back to the basics. If you were either ever in the military or you watched a movie about uh, you know an army base, when someone approaches... You're, they're always challenged with who goes there. That's that's the first question that needs to be asked because before you can determine whether it's a military base or your home or anything online, before you can say, oh, yes, you should be able to do this, you have to know who the individual or the entity is. And I say entity because identity is more than people now online. So it, it's a foundation for everything because no security can exist without identity, period. Um, I'm going to um, say I've been doing this uh, for a long time, in, in fi over five decades. And I've seen the perimeter for computing or cyber or whatever you want to call it today expand. And it used to be you know, the, the frame of the mainframe itself, the actual racks. And then it became the data center, and then it became the network, and then the perimeter became the internet. And now the perimeter is identity, it's you. That's the first line of defense before anything else can be protected in a cyber environment. Without knowing who you are, nothing should be allowed to happen. So Jeff, as things like artificial intelligence become more mainstream, because AI has been around for a long time, as you kind of look to the future of, of where we are, what trends are worth noting around, specifically around identity and identity security? So there's a few trends. Um, uh, let me just get the two words zero trust out of the way. So if we don't talk about it again, at least we know we covered it um, in this podcast. But the, the trends that you see, and, and we will talk about zero trust, but the trends you see around identity really focus now more so on how can you 
um, validate that an identity that is presented can be authenticated and is right for access under the circumstances that currently exist. Now, you mentioned AI. It has been around a long time. Generative AI is relatively new. And when you combine something like generative AI with deepfake, as an example, it can be very challenging to determine identity. You know, you could see, you know, you right now you're actually looking. I, I know this is an audio podcast, but Ken, you're looking at an image of me. And I'm going to bet you have every reason to believe, because you know me, you've seen me before, that this is indeed me. But if I were to say, I want you to bet every asset you own on this being me and not generative AI, you probably wouldn't do that. Well, I don't know, Jeff. I, I might. I might take the risk. You know, you gotta, you got to be risky in life. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, at times you do. And everything you do is, is a risk management equation. So generative AI the, in particular, the role it's playing now is it's at least the good news is it's causing people to start question, gee, is this really who I believe it is? Because I, I, I push the hypothesis that there's three types of identities that we look at. There's carbon-based. We already talked about that. That's you, the, the breathing, living, breathing um, person. That is you. There is silicon-based um, identity, which uh, exists in your phone, in your computer, um, uh, in your car, in every IoT device that you have very likely has a silicon-based identity. And there are artificial identities that either link your carbon-based and silicon-based together or are, are entities on their own that um, don't have any sort of tangible existence as an example an email address is an artificial identity. It's not silicon-based, and it's certainly not carbon-based, but it can tie the two together. So looking at all of those, people now know, and, and we're going to talk about another concept in just a few minutes, people now know that it's more than simply, hey, I'm Jeff, and it's me. Most people are beginning to recognize it. It needs more than that. And the job of, of cyber professionals is to get the right education and information into the heads of everyone that's going to use cyber to know here's how you should challenge, here's what you should accept, and here's how you should behave. So I think that's a good segue into talking about biometrics, which, you know, going back to the the carbon identity, um, which again is is us humans, how, like, when I'm an organization and I'm thinking about, and, and a lot of organizations are already implementing biometrics as part of the um, verification of your identity and authentication and, and providing you the access, you or the uh, the um, the application, you know, et cetera. Um, so with that being said, like what what are some of the considerations around biometrics? Like can can attackers fake that in some capacity? So, you know, that that leading into what are some of the advantages or disadvantages of an organization using biometrics as part of that identity verification? Uh, there there are pluses and minuses. Uh, the first one that I hear from many is that it's more expensive than not using biometrics. And from an actual cash out of hand uh, discussion, that's a, that's a true statement. But you need to take the entire um, picture into account and take a look at what cost avoidance, loss prevention, and productivity. And, and a lot of people forget that security um, is and should be a productivity tool. 
benefits you get from it. So it's less expensive than many people think. That's you know that's one myth I try to dispel. It's not instant, but there is a, a an ROI that you can calculate for it. Um, this the second thing is is that people are either afraid of it, either because for spiritual reasons or societal reasons, or they just don't trust it. And others trust it far too much just to say, well, if I got a, a, a one back from my biometric scan, then things are good, meaning one or zero or zero fail and one is pass. Everyone needs to meet in the middle with that, in my opinion, because there are biometrics that make sense. It kind of ties to zero trust again. That's twice I've said it. Um, and this is not a zero trust podcast. It it goes back to where is that really needed and where is it worth spending that time, effort, and money? If people if you want people to come to your website, you probably don't want to do biometrics authentication for them to view your website. You may not even want to do that for people to change data on your website. That that depends on what you're doing. At some point, as you get deeper into your organization, biometrics may make sense. So even though you can look at the cost, you really have to focus on where does it make sense? Where can I apply the cost? And where am I going to get um, productivity gains back from it? So Jeff, I want to give a chance for those listening to uh, fill out the entire uh, buzzword bingo card that they have. So I'm going to ask a zero trust question so we can hit it a third time here. Okay. So how does zero trust strategy actually align with um, best, best practices for organizations around identity security? So zero trust can't exist without identity best practices because that who goes there challenge in a zero trust environment will occur at every single transaction, every single session, every single um, environment that's going to change. This goes back to the same cost equation I am not necessarily a fan in 2023 of everyone putting zero trust framework and processes over everything they have. I'll use the example of the website again. I'm not going to implement zero trust in order for you to view my website. I may and very likely will implement zero trust to control who can make changes to my website configuration and when they can do that. And the way zero trust is going to work, as the request for that occurs, there's going to be a wiping of memory of, I don't know who you are, I don't care who you are, I'm starting the identification and authentication process all over with you for this session. And um, without best practices to say, I can truly identify who you are and I can authenticate it, you will never have zero trust full stop. So when we think about insider threats, Jeff, how can, you know, because let's say I'm an organization and we're going real deep in my organization now and, and I've given Jeff access and he, you know, scans his little fingerprint or he scans his retina and because we're using the biometrics and then he's entering some other credentials. How can I, as an organization though, protect, you know, yes, I've authenticated Jeff, but maybe Jeff is has turned into a bad guy. Maybe he's like, man, I've been doing this 50 years. Forget these people. They never listened to me. And now I want to be a bad guy all of a sudden. So how, what, like, what can I do as an organization? Because I've already put layers in place to, to validate your identity, but is there anything else that I can do to kind of protect against you causing utter chaos in my organization once I've validated that identity of you? Because is there any checks and balances that I can put in place? Yes, and there needs to be, because uh, just like 
when you get down to it, a computer process doesn't let you do anything you couldn't otherwise do outside of a computer, uh, except you can do it faster. So even if you're committing a crime or doing something stupid, you will simply be enabled to do that faster. And um, you and I have discussed that the reason we have jobs are humans. If it weren't for humans, we'd be out of work because there's certainly the, I'd like to think the recipients and benefactors of what we do, but they're also the reason we have to do what we do. So you can never remove the human equation when it comes to people. Now, I'm going to talk about artificial and silicon identities and insider threats associated with that as well, because from the human perspective, there is a matter of, and I'm a strong supporter of remote work. I'm not necessarily a supporter of, I'm going to give you complete access to control all of the assets that I have online and, and maybe tied to physical assets as well, having never met you and never vetted you and never really validated that you are who you say you are. That, that's the first one. That is something that um, came out of the pandemic in particular that wasn't really needed as much before. Because in the past, if you were going to, when you hire someone, for instance, in the U.S. anyways, you, you're, you're going to meet them in person. They're, they're going to likely present you with either a passport or two forms of ID. You authenticate that. You put that on an I-9 form, and you validate that they are who they say they are. You may have had a reference for them from someone you know. There's a whole bunch of ways you can vet people. Some of those ways are missing when you do everything remotely and, and never actually meet someone in person. And there are many people in that environment now. There are many people that were hired two years ago and have never met anyone else in their company in person. And I'm not certain that necessarily has to happen either. Uh, you, you don't have to meet, but you have to have different ways to vet people. So that's how you start. Now, to answer your question about how do you prevent me from saying I've done this for 50 years, now I really want to fund my retirement, <laughs> based on your resources, um, the way you prevent that is a combination of uh, security awareness and education for me and for all the people I work with, because all of my peers, everyone I work with, should have some view of what I'm doing and should be able to see, you know, that doesn't make sense. That shouldn't be happening. Jeff shouldn't be doing that, or that's really unusual for Jeff. There, you know, there's, you know, it could be that I've been compromised as well. So you you want to have that level of awareness and education across your organization. In addition, I do believe that that you should on a routine basis and the level of risk you have should determine what that period should be. You should find ways to validate what someone's doing, have someone else take a look at it. I'm a strong believer in mandatory vacations, not simply because it's nice to be able to take time off, which it is, but also I want to be able to have a period of time to exist. So when I look at all the processes that let's say, Ken, you were in the organization that I ran. I would like to look at all the processes you run and ensure that they don't break when you're not there, either by accident or because you're doing something other underhanded. So to me, a mandatory vacation means your access is blocked. You can't get into a building. You can't log on to a system. I'm, I'm a strong believer in that. Uh, most financial services companies and banks are required to do that for that very reason. If, if you're stealing money, they want to see, is there a difference when you no longer have access? That's one. The other insider threat is going to be uh, a combination of looking at threat intelligence, 
vulnerability management and activity that you see going on in your system that may have been recognized somewhere else as an insider threat activity or something from an APT that is undesirable that you certainly don't want happening inside. All of those, this, these are why CISOs grow old quickly. All of those are things you need to look at whenever you're going to say, how am I going to assess? And that's not the complete list, but how am I going to assess an insider threat? Jeff, some organizations maybe have a little bit of a mindset that, hey, if I put something in the magical cloud, whether it's public or private, like I don't really have to do anything. They just magically, you know, everything works and it's it's perfect, et cetera. But for the organizations out there that are more realistic and, and realize that there is actual uh, threats and and uh, misconfigurations that may may occur. How can they leverage whether it's public or private cloud they're using, and most are using a combination. How can they leverage their cloud environments? And let's just focus on public cloud. I guess that's probably a little easier. Um, what like what tools are out there? Solutions are out there for an organization that maybe doesn't have a robust security team, but they're migrating to a cloud public cloud environment. There are some native things, and you, and you don't have to pick a specific cloud provider if you don't want to. But, but like, what is out there? Maybe kind of a high level for them to consider around identity security, and what are some of the maybe the tools or um, or best practices that you you would want to share with those organizations? Again, those organizations not having maybe a full time security team, or even you know, it might just be IT people without a security background setting this up, which I've seen in healthcare a lot. So. Um, what, what what advice would you have for those organizations? So there's a few things. I, I've worked, pardon me, I've worked for four different cloud providers, so I'm certainly not going to talk about one versus the other. The second is where I currently work at the Identity Defined Security Alliance, and, and I'm saying this not to plug the organization, although I just did. Uh, we are a vendor-neutral organization. We're a nonprofit, and, and we stay that way. So you, you probably won't hear me uh, talk about a specific brand or tool that's going to be best to use for you, just to give that disclaimer, even though I know you do it, you did the disclaimer up front. So specifically, um, and I do have some interaction with organizations that are just now moving to the cloud. And this is, keep in mind, this is the cloud's really been around from its um, infancy for around 15 years at this point. So it's no longer simply a new technology. I know I was working at one cloud provider when it was new, and all I heard from any prospect was, I, we can't go to the cloud, it's not secure. And I would always say that statement is true until you change it. So let's talk about how do you change that uh, mindset that the cloud isn't secure, because it isn't. In, in no, it's no different than you saying all of my money's in a bank right now and I, there's a brick and mortar building and I have a level of trust and there's government regulations around it and all that's great. But now I can reduce my fees, my bank fees, by putting my money in this big open garden that a lot of people said, come in here, you'll share some, some of the space with others, but the money's still yours. Would people do that? Probably not. So... The cloud can be the same thing. However, that public garden can say, oh, if you want to either buy these tools that we offer or just go shop in the market and implement something else, you can. And we can get into some specifics to maybe put a cage around your money or maybe even build you know, a little box that your money's going to go in with remote control over um, tr uh, alarm triggers and everything else. 
I, sometimes I use that analogy for the cloud because people can relate to money's valuable, and if it's taken, I, I, it causes some pain to me. Going from a bank to an open garden is the analogy of going to the cloud. Now, most cloud providers, and certainly all the big reputable ones, offer a set of tools you can get through their marketplace to put in firewalls and um, intrusion detection, whether it's host-based or network-based. I'm, I'm essentially creating a checklist here. You should be able to provide external validation for, <clears throat> pardon me, for either multi-factor authentication or even integration with biometrics. In addition to that, once you get past that, you should be able to have good access control lists that you can validate. You should have alarms that can be triggered. You're going to have logs for all activities, just like if it was sitting on a a one U computer sitting in a rack, um, or 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 five U's or or five racks. You should be able to say every single activity that's important to me. I want to log it. I want to get it on a separate log server, and then you may need a, a cloud-based SIM potentially um, to ingest all of those logs and correlate that to other real-time events and give you um, an indicator, whether it's on a dashboard or, or through a, a, a text or an email that says something's happening that you don't want happening or here's some anomalies that you need to take a look at. So I would go through all of that, all of that reporting. You should also be aware of there's other things once you get to the cloud that might not have been as much an issue if you were working in a traditional on-prem data center um, and one is bandwidth. When you take a look at how much throughput's going on in the cloud, you should be able to match that against the activity that you know is occurring. Um, I did work in one organization where on my second day, I made the observation. First, I made the hypothesis and then confirmed it through observation that we were paying for about twice as much bandwidth as we were actually using. And in fact, we were reselling bandwidth and we were losing money on it and no one could figure out why. And it wasn't until we discovered that there were organizations taking the bandwidth and using it, even if they weren't touching our data, which they were, by the way, um, but to do other nefarious things, which then appeared to come from us. So it was costing us money, it was ruining our reputation, it was affecting our data. All of that takes needs to be taken into account when you go to the cloud versus on-prem. Now, I don't want to make it sound scary because for every one of those scenarios I just talked about, there are multiple sets of tools available that you can go buy to address it. And I always recommend Plan out what you want to do. Don't talk about a product. Don't talk about a tool. Make sure you can outline what do you need to do. Bring in an expert consultant should you need that. Or maybe even hire someone that's going to set that up and run it um, on your behalf uh, in your organization. And once you know what you want to do and you can either flowchart that or outline it, then go find tools that can accomplish that. There are far too many organizations that go to the cloud and just select every tool they can in the cloud marketplace, implement it, don't know how to use it, don't use over half of them. Um, who, whoever sold it, happy because they're making money on it, but it's not being used properly. And you're at risk because you're, you have a false sense of security that I put so much money into security, everything must be great. You may not need 90% of what you paid for because you never figured out what was important to you and what did you need to protect. Um, one more myth I want to dispel about the cloud. I, I have encountered organizations 
um, that said, we're going to eliminate our disaster recovery plan because we're moving everything to the cloud. And my my favorite question, I, I have spent some time as a consultant, my favorite question is always, why? Why are you doing that? And the answer is typically, well, it's in the cloud. The cloud never breaks, and I don't have to worry about that recovery. I don't have a data center anymore. It doesn't take much to come up with. Here's instances of downtime for major, largest cloud providers, because they're still running on computers in data centers across networks. Never forget that. Um, so having something uh, mirrored maybe in a different region or even having um, physical backups that you can take somewhere else, should that be what you want to do, don't ignore that. And that is part of security because the three main tenets of security, cybersecurity, have always been confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And if your system is not available, that three-legged stool is missing a leg and it falls over. How's that for a short answer? love it. It's interesting you mentioned disaster recovery in the cloud. I forget the cloud provider, but it was a recent one in the past couple of months. I think they were out of Denmark, maybe. I could have that wrong. Um, I, forget, I forget the name. It was a smaller cloud provider. Anyways, they got hit with a ransomware attack and they basically told their customers, sorry. You know, so if if you're if you're an organization listening to this and your plan, uh, you know, sorry that Jeff just, you know, ruined your your day. To, uh, to, to let you know that uh, moving stuff to the cloud is not a replacement for disaster recovery planning. Um, Jeff, blockchain was one of the the buzzword bingo things, you know, just a few years back. Everyone, it was all the rage and everyone, oh, people were getting blockchain certified and all this stuff and all these, you know, how the education providers do it. They come out with these, the marketing people build the course. Anyways, I won't, we won't go there. That'd be a whole other episode. Um, but essentially all these things came out. Everyone got excited about blockchain and yes, it is implemented in, specifically in financial institutions and in other places as well, but can blockchain be used effectively to help secure identities in your opinion? I, I believe it can. I, I'm, I, I, I'm going to struggle to come up with a specific example. They said, boy, here's how blockchain made identity work for you. Uh, but I do believe it can be used. First of all, everyone needs to get past the fact that blockchain is not cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency effectively uses blockchain, but it's just blockchain, that's just one use of it. Blockchain really boils down to having a, a, a ledger that is contributed to by the blockchain community that is, as of now, immutable. Uh, you can have a level of confidence that the that the entries in the ledger haven't been changed, removed, or added without the community agreeing to the conditions for that entry to be there. I say that for now because uh, uh, let's let's fill out the crypt the, the bingo card. Crypt, uh, pardon me, um, quantum. As quantum computing becomes more affordable and more available. I do think you're going to see opportunities for poorly constructed blockchain ledgers to be broken and maybe even some good ones. But as you said earlier, that's probably another another episode on its own uh, talking about quantum. But for now, blockchain should be able to work for a chain of identity. As an example, you could say, I'm going to vet your identity based on the previous transactions that you can demonstrate you've accomplished within this ledger. And the more transactions you have, the more you're essentially building up your reputation. And if you want to use that as a vetting process for identity, I think that could work very effectively for yourself. 
it is not necessarily an authentication vector, although I'm, I imagine there could be a way to make that happen, but I'm not aware of any that, that, that use that for authentication right now, although I have seen some that use it for vetting for identification, and I think that's only going to grow. Blockchain technology, it's, it's good that it's past the buzzword phase, and it has been demonstrated to, under current pre-quantum um, environments, work very well for having a level of trust in the history of transactions. So, Jeff, any final thoughts or advice for organizations out there around identity and identity security? Sure. So I'm going to put my plug in that um, if you go to IDSalliance.org, that is the Identity Defined Security Alliance. We do offer a lot of those best practices, and that's made available free to the public. So I'm not here trying to sell something. Um, should you want to become a member, that's fine as well. But I, I think what people want to take away, let's say they don't want to go to the website, and they say, just tell me right now what I need to do. It, it, I'm going to say go back to the basics. Remember that the, the three-legged three stool for security is confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Always ensure that you're delivering all three of those. Now, when it comes to identity, what I would offer is consider your organization to be a building with a lot of different rooms and hallways. Each one composed its own challenge to get past it to the next. Put what's most important right in the center of the building. Make ensure that you have to go through the most number of checks, even if it's frictionless, to get there. That being said, you can then determine what's in the outer zone and what should be able to should everyone be able to see. It could be that you have a glass wall around the outer zone because everyone should see through it. To get past that to maybe enter some data, you may need to say, give me a, a self-validated identification. Say you're Jeff, and if and once I validate that with your email or something else, I'll believe you. To get to the next one, you're gonna have to say, you need to have someone I know say that you're Jeff. To get past that, you're going to have to say, now that I know who you are, I want you to register some biometrics, and I want you to input those every time you get to the next level. If you keep that concept in mind, you're going to spend less on identity and access control. You'll, it'll be more effective, and you're going to have happier users. You're going to have less friction. Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on, Jeff. Uh, the link to Jeff's organization will be uh, in the description of the podcast, along with Jeff's password and bank account info, he's graciously shared. So, and uh, social security account. number, don't forget that. Well, yes, we've got to, we've got to have the extra check, uh, passport info, all that good stuff. But yeah, I mean, Jeff, a uh, great episode, a lot of wisdom you shared. Hopefully that'll help some of the organizations out there. Um, and if not, then that's just job security for everyone. So uh, either way, it works out. So again, thanks for coming on, Jeff. Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Great talking with you again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you're looking to secure your business better or build up your cybersecurity career, then check us out over at cyberlife.tv. That's C-Y-B-E-R-L-I-F-E dot T-V.